Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Beautiful summer we're having. I love that uh, as summer keeps trudging along, we're, we're slowly moving through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, verse, verse by verse, and I uh, love this, the discipline of doing that over uh, the summer, and whether you've been around, or you've, you're coming in and out of holidays, or if you're just uh, new this morning, welcome, it's good to be together. Uh, I'm really eager to look at this morning's text, it's on the theme of judgment, uh, which uh, it feels like a, a real needed word this morning, and, and even even now, as I perceive in this room, I, I would say maybe a spirit of judgment about my mustache. So I just want to say off the top, um, I'm glad. I, I hope you're listening. Okay, <laughs> this, I hope you're listening. Okay, here here we are. Uh, Wendell Berry. Some Christians give the impression that the highest Christian bliss would be to get to heaven and find that you are the only one there. Aye, aye, aye. And so uh, I think this is a needed text. Let's, let's jump into it. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open that. And we'll be in Matthew 7 uh, for the morning, verses 1 to 6. So let's go there. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is going on here? We've got got a paragraph on judging, very famous one, do not judge. And then we've got a bit about sawdust and logs and planks and then we've got the real wild part about dogs and pigs and pearls and trampling and getting torn to pieces what is going on what is Jesus talking about here is there any internal logic to what we just read Uh, I think there is Um, how many times have you heard at least the the beginning of this passage quoted right even if you don't know the Bible or or even if you've never been around it I, I think many would know this verse, and it often comes up perhaps in, in uh, conflict or if you're confronting someone, hey, do not judge. Hey, don't judge. And then it's kind of just left there. Uh, so what does Jesus mean? When is it right to judge or are we never supposed to judge? And, and, and what kind of judgment are we talking about? So the word Jesus used, that, that, would, that would seem smart. Let's just figure out what he was talking about first. The word he uses here is the word krino. And krino is used all over the New Testament, and there's a bunch of different ways to use it. And so let's just take a little moment here to do a quick survey. Places like Titus, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, says, um, it uses it in this way. The, the verses, as soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me and Nicholas, because I have decided to winter there, because I have krinoed. To winter there. So that's how it's being used. So one way to use the word crino, which is, again, what we found in Matthew 7, is to decide, to distinguish, to discern, or to revolve. 
Another place, John 18, 31. Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And so this is to judge in a court of law. That is, to, that, that is another way of using crino. It's court language. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing. Crino nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. And he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Now here, Crino, is something that God does. God exposes, perceives, and exposes hidden things and brings them to the surface. Uh, Namely here, what's going on in somebody's heart. Last example, John 7, 24. Stop judging, stop crinoing by mere appearances, but instead crino correctly. So just to note, the first two, Jesus is not saying a no to. He's not shutting down. No more Judge Judy, uh, if, if that's your thing. He's not shutting down your, your career, hoping to work in the courts or legal system. Uh, and certainly, he's not shutting down discernment, making decisions. I, I hope that's obvious. But just to, to try and clarify this a little more, let's, let's look at a chart. So we've got judgment. It's a big word. It, it seems like it's an umbrella word that, that a lot of things get uh, imported into. So as, as we've just kind of distinguished between the two, definition A is to discern. And it's essentially to say this. Apples are not oranges. It's just a discernment statement. It moves into def- definition B to condemn and that is saying, like, God hates apples or death to all apples. And so apples are less than oranges. And so I want to I really make that clear. There's a difference here between discerning, deciding, and condemning and controlling. So if we were to summarize, we could just do this. We've got deciding, discerning, perceiving, distinguishing, noticing, all parts of crino. And then you've got condemning, criticizing, shaming, ignoring, and controlling. And so this is not about deciding and discerning. This is all about controlling and condemning. Particularly condemning. So it's about raising yourself by lowering another. It's the act of setting yourself above another person. I'm just so glad. I mean, we've all got our struggles, but I'm just so glad I don't struggle like they do. It's raising yourself up by lowering another. I, I love watching lectures. This is just a little time out here for nerds. I love watching lectures on YouTube. And so you're watching the one that you're interested in, but then you see all the other ones related to. It's just, it, it's amazing how you can see the polarization just in the YouTube channel and how this is at work. Watch Jordan Peterson destroy a millennial snowflake. And that's the video. And then the next video is, watch an intellectual professor destroy homophobe Jordan Peterson. And it's just, the, that's, that's how it works. This is Crino looking down on, on one another in the same channel. Okay? It's the act of setting yourself above others. It's also about confusing action with essence. So somebody it messes up. It's an action. And, and then you, you confuse that with that's their essence. They didn't just mess up. They are a mess up. Okay? It's about a means of control. 
often guised as a means of looking for truth, but it's a means of control, of getting others to do what I want through criticism, through shame, through speaking against them. I don't know if this has ever worked for you. Like, just you, you, you get criticized enough and you find like, all right, yes, I agree with you. Your, your winsome ways have completely won me over. Uh, shame has worked so well here. It just, it never works. It's about assuming divine responsibility for evaluating the worth and the value of another person. Often to make pronouncements about that worth. Pronouncements we have no business making. That's on God. Pronouncements about somebody's worth, their future, whether they're a write-off. Pronouncements as though you have the final word on the matter. And these are often made in social media, lots. Offhand conversations, jokes, memes, and prayer requests. And so essentially it's to attempt to do God's job. Uh, It's sitting behind the judge's bench, putting on the robe, picking up the gavel. And this is what Jesus is confronting, and and we get... We get this elsewhere in Scripture. James 4, 11 to 12. Brothers, sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So just... Real, real clear, straightforward, there's only one judge, and it ain't you. Okay, so that, that's some definitions about judgment. I saw this church sign recently, and I think this is more or less uh, what we're talking about. Just love everyone, I'll sort them out later, God. Okay, and we, we, we know this stuff, and probably like even as we're talking about judgment, you may more or less agree with, yes, this is, this is not good to do. Uh, I agree with Jesus on this point. Do not judge. Uh, particularly in uh, quite tolerant cultures like the one we live in in Vancouver. It would be pretty easy just to go, yeah. But here's the thing. We all know this stuff. Nobody wants to be uh, Judgy McJudgerson. Nobody w- I don't want that to be said of me. And yet it's hard not to judge. It's, it's really hard to kick the habit. So I just want to take a time out and ask, why is it so hard? I think one of the f- first reasons is because judging can feel good. Feels good sometimes to judge. Here's a meme. I'm Facebook friends with dozens of immature, trashy, obnoxious people, and I'd unfriend them, but I genuinely enjoy judging their behavior. Um, so it feels good. It feels good uh, to, uh, to get that elevated position feels good sometimes to watch someone on YouTube destroy somebody else intellectually. feels good to judge. I think another reason why it's hard is because I know I'm right. You're never so dangerous as when you're right. So it's a very dangerous place to be. When you're right, then any means are fine. Hey, you're right. Be a jerk because you, you've got... You got the right argument. They're clearly in the wrong. So this is a challenging one for parents. Because I know I'm right. It's hard. I like how Dallas Willard puts it. We must beware of believing that it is okay for us to condemn as long as we are condemning the right things. 
It's not so simple as that. I can trust Jesus to go into the temple and drive out those who are profiting from religion while swinging a rope around. I cannot trust myself to do so. So here's the, here's the tricky thing, and just to speak to those of you who may have a gift of discernment. If, if you're a person who is gifted with a gift of discernment, your lot in life will be to struggle with judgment. It's just they're related, as we've already seen. And so as your gift of discernment matures, part of that growing process will be a struggle with judgment. The third reason is because we're all living east of Eden. Remember that story of Cain and Abel? It was Genesis 4, classic uh, Bible story, Cain and Abel. They're brothers, but there's jealousy and contempt and comparison that creeps in in the relationship. And Cain ends up killing his brother Abel, draws him out into the field. Uh, It says he attacks him and then killed him. Cain feels so unworthy and unloved by God in comparison to Abel. He feels unworthy and unloved. And so he has to do something about that. And the way he deals with his insecurity, with his deficiency, with his lack of identity, is to make the other one evil. I have to... The evil one must always be killed so that I can be worthy, loved, so that I can be moral. Another group, nationality, class, has to be named wrong so that we can feel right. Uh, This is, in fancy language, this is called mimetic rivalry, uh, where I need a rival to have a sense of identity. And so the insecure self needs an enemy or a scapegoat so that I can feel superior and saved. So that's, that's a very ancient story of Cain and Abel, and yet it's, a, it's an archetypal pattern that's to, so universal, and it gets played out in nations and tribes, and particularly with religions. Religion can form around that same kind of impulse, and can give an individual, it can give a group an identity that works for a while, with our immorality cleverly denied and carried by a scapegoat person or group, I feel pretty good about myself. Saved and superior because I've got that other group or that other person, that other tribe that I'm against. Richard Bohr calls this the false sacred. The false sacred, that, that sense of I'm, I'm right and I'm religiously right, uh, creates a holy justification for judgment and for condemnation and then worse things like prejudice, racism, colonialism, and violence. That's where this stuff goes, that ancient Cain and Abel mimetic rivalry uh, that, that enables me, even through religion, to posture myself. Anyone know anything about this? Okay, got a few head nods. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. Maybe if you're honest, you'd say, yeah, that was... That was me. I I became a Christian, and in my enthusiasm and love for God, the world became very binary, and I loved, you know, unchristians and pagans and heathens. I liked those terms. I didn't define people by their humanity. I just defined them by what they weren't, uh, because I was that, and the world got very binary for me. I don't know if if you're honest. You could say maybe, yeah, I've, I've experienced that. It feels good to be right. And so Jesus then comes in, as we've, as we've been looking at with this announcement, 
repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Something new is at work in the world, and it's not just more mimetic rivalry clothed in religion. This is what ended up getting Jesus killed (laughs) because the religious elites couldn't deal with this alternative vision that Jesus had that included uh, being loved by God, a God who is a father who is generous and gracious to all. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, you'll remember it talks about how God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. That's just like a a real generous God. And uh, so then in relationship uh, with this loving God, as you come under that loving, generous rule, that reorients how you relate to other people. And uh, it, it creates a new way of loving your neighbor. But without coming under that generous rule, that gracious rule, or without having God be the judge, what are we left with? A whole bunch of mini-judges. This is just what it means to live in a post-God time. We're left with a whole bunch of mini-judges. We're burdened with our own need to explain everything, to judge everything, to categorize everything. If God is not God, then we're subject to one another's mercy instead of God's mercy. And that really sucks. And it hurts. And so what Jesus invites us into is into the kingdom of God, under the rule of God, where mercy triumphs over judgment. So last week, in last week's teaching, Jesus is teaching us to entrust ourselves to God. And when we don't, the outcome is anxiety and worry. Here in this week's passage, Jesus is entrusting us or teaching us to entrust others to God, and when we don't, the outcome is judging and control. Do you see how it, it, it matters so much what kind of king or what kind of rule you're living under? It really determines everything, and it's all about entrusting other people to God. So we're going to get back to that in a moment. So here we are, verse 2. Uh, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is, is just saying judgmentalism, it's circular. That whole Cain and Abel thing, that rivalry thing, that just keeps going. It keeps going and going and going. And once it's started, once it goes round and round, it consumes people and it will consume you. So he's saying be very careful. The measure you use on others will be used on you. That's just how it works. Now, in Luke's gospel, it's interesting. There's a parallel passage in Luke's gospel. And unlike uh, Matthew, Luke has the no command, do not judge. But Luke also has a yes command. So instead of judging, he says, forgive. I think that's interesting. You've got a negative and a positive. So instead of judging, forgive. Be quick to give grace. Instead of condemning, look to, to, to be part of a conspiracy of giving away grace to people. Uh, Matthew 20, Jesus tells this uh, parable of the workers and the vineyard. And the workers who show up at 9 a.m., uh, and, and then there's the workers that show up right at the end of the day at 5 p.m., and all of them get the same wage. It's like, ah, that's a... That's a f- quite a big difference between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. And Jesus tells this parable to provoke us, to provoke his listeners to go, that's 
fair. I don't like that. I don't like grace. I like it when it's flowing to me. But if I've been here 9 a.m., I don't want it flowing to the Yahoo who showed up at 5 p.m. And so the landowner, the boss, who is the God figure in this story, says this because the workers are ticked. This is what God, the landowner, says. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? Here's a hard truth. God loves the people you hate. That's hard. It's hard to accept that God loves the people you hate. Maybe, maybe you, you really don't like judgy people. So that's your thing. You judge judgy people. Here's the hard truth. God loves the people you hate. This is what it means to come under his rule. So verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I was reading this week about, I'd never heard of this phrase before, but expert delusion. Phrase, expert delusion. Um, And it, the idea is that with so much of our learning coming from consuming information, often in uh, impersonal ways, like not from another person, but from, from feeds and blog posts and articles, um, since so much of what I know comes through these detached mediums, we enter into uh, what's called expert delusion. And that is um, a self-perception that I know things that I'm not actually living. Right, so I've I've read an article about the importance of sunscreen. I'm not currently wearing any, but I'm very quick to tell you about skin cancer, and you really should be applying 20 minutes before you go out. That kind of stuff, right? Like you know it, you're not doing it or living it, uh, but but it creates a kind of delusion that by knowing it or having read it, that you are it or doing it. And this is the kind of thing Jesus is trying to get at. And he's doing it with hyperbole. Uh, very likely, the people are laughing at this point in the sermon. There's a comedic element here. It's very exaggerated. He's using extreme language here uh, to, to unearth this expert delusion or unearth the tendency to minimize my faults and maximize yours. And Jesus is drawing, maybe because he's his background's a carpenter, maybe so he's, he's drawing from uh, kind of a woodsy metaphor. Uh, and and th- there's likely laughter at this point. So we've got to have a, got to have some wood. Nathan. <laughs> you fell out of 
problem actually is that Plankaigai um, is, 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 is impaired in, in vision and is blind. So it's the presumption that I will help and teach others. That's, that's arrogant hypocrisy. And this is what Jesus just, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. Now, in verse 5, he does mention taking out the speck. So let's hear this too. Jesus just is not saying there's no such thing as the speck. Or just, just let it go. No, the, the, even that little speck really hurts. It's painful. God's intention would be for healing there. But as Henry Nouwen says, only wounded healers have a right to heal. So this isn't about denying the speck. It's not saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's not even just getting stuck at saying, like, I've got, we've all got specks. It, it's, about, it's about the priority first of dealing with what's going on in my life. It, it, yes, the sawdust needs to be removed, but only from those whose help is tempered by the humility that comes from having their own pieces of wood removed from their lives. Those are the only ones you want to trust, especially with sensitive things like eyes or your soul or your family history. You don't want planks coming, coming through. No, you're not coming through. Okay. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn, turn and tear you to pieces. This part is just wild. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> you know, you kind of wonder, did he have to say this? Was there a pearl problem? Was this, a, was people like just being unwise with their pearls? Somehow thinking pearls would appreciate, or pigs would appreciate pearls? And I think that's actually close to what's going on here. A pearl is a valuable thing, a good thing, a treasured thing. But a pig is unable to appreciate even comprehend that good thing. So Jesus is calling his followers to entrust others to God. And when we don't entrust others, when we try to control them and manipulate them, we can do this in two ways. We can try and control people by judging, condemning, critiquing, correcting negative things. Or we can try and control them by pushing pearls and sacred things on them. Old German theologian I read this week had this great one-liner, don't impute sin, but also don't impose holiness. Or as Annie Lamont says, our help is usually not very helpful. Our help is often toxic. And help is the sunny side of control. Stop helping so much. Don't get your help and goodness all over everybody. <laughs> don't throw your pearls away. The pearl actually may be your love for Jesus. The pearl actually may be your Christian faith. It, the pearl may be, yeah, that brilliant article that could be really helpful. But when someone isn't ready, when the season isn't right, as good as the pearl may be, it is not received as a pearl, as a good thing. They're not able to appreciate it. The good thing turns into something else. And they react negatively. And often the, the giver, the thrower of pearls, 
doesn't understand the violence of the reaction. I mean, how many family systems do you know of that have this exact story? You've got someone who's giving and giving and insisting. Pearls upon pearls, so much good stuff. And it creates a rebellion in them. It could be the classic story of like a kid just raised totally Christian in Christian camp and Sunday school and VBS. All good stuff. And at some point they're like, I've had it! And the reaction is huge and violent. And there's a pain. And the giver's going, what did I do? What was that? See, maybe without even knowing it, the, giver desires, the, the giver's desire to give was really the desire to manipulate an outcome. I will make you Christian. I will correct you. I will, show, I will keep you on the path. I will correct you into loving God. It's pearls, good stuff. But it comes from control. Control. I think at the heart of this is about entrusting others to God. And so it means dropping the plank and dropping the pearls. I mean, just starting with, God, what are, what are my planks this morning? What, what am I walking around blind to? And to surrender them to God. If you want to help someone, start first with your own plank. Maybe closer to being ready to help. Second thing is to face the illusion of control. You couldn't control your child in the first place, and not once could you make your spouse do anything. And you cannot chide or correct or condemn anyone into change. So is there someone that you've been trying to control? Have you been trying to either get them to do stuff or get them to stop doing stuff? To face the illusion head on. The third one is to be completely relieved of being God. What a relief. You don't have to judge. It's not your call. You don't have to expose the hidden secrets of people's hearts. That's not you. Don't judge or you will be judged. The same measure will be applied to you. Or another way of putting it is don't do God's job. That is not a job description you want your evaluation based on. It's like, I don't want that job review. Yeah, well, then don't take the job. (laughs) You just let it be. Be relieved of being God. Fourth one is to practice prophetic kindness. A couple weeks ago, Amy and I went to see that uh, Mr. Rogers movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, I was excited to see it. I just was not prepared for it. Um, well, first of all, I've got to show you this next slide. This is just amazing graphic. This is every color of cardigan <laughs> Mr. Rogers wore from 1979 to 2001. Uh, just amazing. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Oh, just wasn't, wasn't prepared for that. I didn't really grow up on Mr. Rogers, so there was no nostalgic factor. I mean, I knew of him. I was a bit more of a Mr. Dress-Up uh, guy myself. But... Um, but I, it, what, Amy and I just wept through the movie, and I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that, and other people were weeping in the movie. And so I got online, and I was reading about this, and there's, there's a phenomenon around this movie, a lot of crying 
That's the joke. Get prepared to, to cry. Why? Well, well uh, Mr. Rogers went to seminary. And so his love for kids, the, the respect and the dignity he, he gave to kids was informed by his faith. Uh, he's really progressive. Uh, during the weeks, there, there's some stories, I forget, this was in the 60s, where African-American children were being yanked out of public pools to not be swimming with white kids. And so on that week, um, he does this. They show the, the footage in the film, and, and Mr. Rogers is like, oh, it's so cold, so hot. Nothing feels better on a hot day than to cool down your feet. Oh, hello, would you like to cool down your feet? Why, yes, I would. But it was so simple and yet so subversive on the very same week. He's doing stuff like this. And so David Brooks is writing about what's the phenom phenomenon about Mr. Rogers at this time. He says, the power is in Rogers' radical kindness at a time when public kindness is scarce. It's as if the pressure of living in a time such as ours gets released in that theater as we're reminded that, oh yes, that's how people can be. I think that's what Amy and I were encountering. It was just like, oh, a kind person who's, who, who just doesn't bite and devour and condemn and isn't full of snark. Oh, how refreshing. I think we're at a moment where we're particularly poised for people that live with prophetic kindness. This is a mean age. It's a real mean moment. And, and this, the simplicity of kindness, uh, even just as this movie is showing us, uh, is a way to live high contrast in our time. So that would be something to consider. Practice prophetic kindness. One last quote by St. Isaac of Syria. I love this one. Conquer evil by your gentle kindness and make bloodthirsty zealots online or anywhere else wonder at your goodness. Allow those who treasure punishment to be put to shame by your compassion and engage those who hate you with irritating humility. I love it. Irritating humility. And lastly, it would be to receive the mercy of Jesus. If you are one who is struggling with judgment, you just can't give something you do not have, something that has not touched your core. And so if you are having a lack of mercy, if you actually are bankrupt and your, your funds are insufficient in your mercy banks, then uh, there's good news because we get to come to one who's rich in mercy, slow to anger and abounding in love. And we get to come as beggars and... Uh, on level ground this morning to the table to receive a fresh mercy. So I don't know what the next step for you would be if it, they might not even fit in all five of these, but we've got a moment here. I just want to also say I'm about 20 minutes under than I was last week. I'm not looking for applause. I'm just making it known, okay? <laughs> so 20 minutes shorter. Um, not bad, hey? Scotty? Okay. Um, so we've got some time here. Let's, uh, let's take a few moments. Uh, maybe the Spirit wants to breathe in some imagination for what it might mean to practice prophetic kindness. Maybe you're just, as, as we've said, you're, you're feeling bankrupt and you need God's mercy to actually meet you in a particular place. I think the Spirit is eager to confirm Scripture 
and not just leave us as admirers or even students, but those who experience and receive uh, the life of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for the good news this morning that is, it confronts us. Really clear stuff like do not and being called names like hypocrite and the mixture of humor in there. And whatever is ours to walk into this morning, we pray for your spirit to uh, create new inclination to following Jesus in the hard places. Pray particularly for mercy for those who've been on the receiving end of judgment by religious systems, by uh, the church that gets co-opted by mimetic rivalry rather than the gospel of grace. Pray for fresh mercy. Pray for fresh repentance from those of us who are part of the church. For those of us who are just trapped in holding judgment over someone because we've been wounded deeply. Would you give fresh courage this morning to even consider what it might mean just to hand them over to you. To no longer be holding them to a sentence that we want to give them. And in releasing them, we can be released to move on. For those of us who have been really busy with pearls and are disoriented why it's not going as we thought and why our goodness and help hasn't, it feels like it's been misinterpreted or, or worse, that there's been a big reaction to it. Help us. Help us to learn. Help us to gain nuance. Help us to trust that your spirit is capable. Thank you that we come to this table this morning for fresh mercy. Fresh mercy and that you want us to metabolize it into our very lives so that we can become mercy in your world. So we come this morning just as we are to receive your mercy afresh. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the creator,